Um, good morning, Amago. Happy Pride. We are um, going to be continuing with our series today on weird people doing weird things in the Bible, but I promise it will relate, and I didn't force any, any kind of merging here. So, um, We uh, are going to be in the last section of Mark. Mark uh, 1, it's 40 to 45, if anybody's interested in the source text. Um, one interesting thing to note about Mark <clears throat> as a gospel writer, he is your um, Michael Moore writer. He's the big, fast action, quick things, power, one thing right after another, not a lot of explanation, not a lot of background. He just wants to kind of drive the point. So... In chapter 1 alone, Mark covers John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus being baptized, where God speaks from the heavens that Jesus is his son, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, um, Jesus calls his first disciples, he goes into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days, John the Baptist is arrested, um, at which point Jesus takes that as the sign for him to step fully into his ministry. He drives out a demon, heals a bunch of people, drives out more demons, retreats to pray, and there's still time for him to heal a guy who has leprosy. That's chapter one. So if you want the nitty gritty on Jesus' life, I would recommend to start with Mark um, out of any of the other gospels. But um, the story we're going to be talking about today, I want to give a little bit of context into this term leprosy. Because we know, um, and I forgot to make a note, there is an actual disease that has been named. And a lot of times we think of it as a skin disease. We just don't know much about it. It's actually a nerve disorder. So like where Mother Teresa had her leprosy camps, and, and whenever we hear about leprosy today, it's usually referring to this specific issue. The reason it's so often assumed to be a skin disorder is because what it does is it deadens the nerve endings. So if somebody gets a scratch and they don't notice it, they're not going to take care of it. They're not going to know that they need to get antibiotics or they need to put anything on it. That will eventually get infected and that will eventually get worse. And the reason you see so much amputeeism and things like that with uh, combined with leprosy is because it's so easy, especially in very poor, very underserved areas, for people to note and, and actually tend to... Um, an, an injury or an illness. That background is only important because in the context of scripture, we see uh, leprosy referred to a ton in the Old Testament, especially in the law, and that's going to pertain to the story today. But that term was more of an umbrella term when we read it in the Old Testament. It absolutely did include these kinds of illnesses, disorders, and diseases, but it also referred to things like mold, other infections, other skin diseases. It could have been eczema, rosacea. Really, any visible issue on the skin was kind of under this general term of leprosy. So when we get to our man today who has leprosy, we don't know exactly the specific disease that, that he had. So I just feel like that context is um, helpful. Now, when you see leprosy talked about in the Old Testament, um, can we actually go to the next slide? I forgot to say that, sorry. Um, we see that leprosy and, and frankly a lot of other diseases are linked to um, sin. 
So the law will basically talk about, and, and this goes into the worldview for the ancient world, not just Hebrews, but um, there was often an association that if things are going well, it's because you've pleased the gods. If things are going poorly, it's because you've displeased the gods. That's where all of the sacrifices and all of the different rituals that you see in the ancient world, um, you know, praying for rain and things like, all of that came down to this understanding that what you're experiencing has to do with whether or not the gods are pleased with you. And the Hebrews had this very clear document um, called the law that let them know exactly what it would take to please or displease their God. And so often, whenever we see leprosy referred to, it's in relation to repenting for sin, making a sin offering. There are whole rituals, if you got better, that you were supposed to do for the, the priest to proclaim, yes, you are now free from sin. And the reason this was so important is because another huge aspect of the worldview at that time was the idea of things being either clean or unclean. And you see that all over the, the Old Testament. And this didn't necessarily mean good or bad, although it's easy to, to kind of infer that, but really just had to do with, is this thing pure enough to be under the umbrella of holy, or is this thing not pure enough to be holy and is strictly human? I could go for a long time about that, and I won't, but understand that there's a lot of distinction there that doesn't have to do with moral uh, distinction. It has to do really with, is this a human thing that's going to be flawed and imperfect, or is this a holy thing that can be brought into the presence of God? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, uh, if we can go to the next slide. Um, the last thing I want to say on this is just some kind of tangential context, but because it is very hard for us to understand how these kinds of diseases would impact people outside of, of what we're going to talk about for um, Jesus Day and culture. Uh, in the book Irresistible Revolution, um, I can't preach without mentioning Shane Claiborne, you all know that, but he spent time um, with Mother Teresa's uh, ministry. And he tells a story, and this is a little bit graphic, but um, he tells a story of being at one of the leper colonies, and they rang the dinner bell. Resources are scarce. There was a man there who had a broken leg bone. He couldn't feel it, but he had it. When they rang the dinner bell, um, the general picture I get from the description is that it's just a little bit like of a herd, like rushing to see, um, because there might be people who don't get much food, if any at all, so there was kind of this race. And he watched this man with the broken leg run. And he watched the bone split out of his, his skin. And there was a smile on the man's face because he was ahead of other people. He had no idea how much damage he was doing because he couldn't feel it. That's what we need to understand about a situation that I personally have never been anywhere close to. It's, a, it's graphic, but I hope that helps us just to understand the severity of what people were facing. That was India a couple decades ago. We're talking 2,000 years ago in the middle of a desert. So this is just a little bit of the context of what this man is experiencing. So when we see the word leprosy, I don't want us to just skip past that, like, oh, he had itchy skin. <laughs> we don't know exactly what was wrong. But it could have been, it could have been pretty debilitating. Um, we just, we don't know for sure. 
in Jesus' day, because of all the things I just explained about uh, clean, unclean, all of that, people with leprosy were ostracized. And, and this was something that, that, to some extent, was like a public health issue. And so the reason they would be put into camps or, or sitting outside of city limits would be specifically because they could infect other people. They didn't know how all those transmissions worked. You know, there were a lot of concerns. And so if somebody ended up with leprosy of any kind, they were sent away from the community. There wasn't welfare at that time. Um, just like with people in prison, if your family or friends didn't bring you resources, you just didn't have resources. Maybe alms, but you couldn't ask for alms because you couldn't be near the city gates. And so if, unless there were people who were incredibly proactive about taking care of you, for all intents and purposes, these people were on their own and without any resources. So, um, so that's the context of the general disease. When we get into our story, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of tell you the story. Um, I'll try my best to let you know when I'm uh, putting my own thoughts into it. So we find out that there is a man who has leprosy who's outside of a town. This is after Jesus has his disciples. So at this point, he's already traveling with other people. Um, he the man would have been located somewhere between communities, probably close to his home community. But we don't know for sure. We just know that he was out there. They doesn't tell us anything about this man's background. And there was a point where in reading this story, I got really curious about his background. Did he have a family when this happened? I imagine him like 30s to 40s. That's just me. But I imagine him with a wife and kids and responsibilities, a job. Um, there, were, there was a life that was there. And with one diagnosis, he loses literally everything. Um, was he a spiritual man? Uh, with leprosy, he couldn't go to the temple to provide sacrifices and offerings. He couldn't participate in the Day of Atonement. So if he took his spirituality and religion seriously, he was carrying the weight of all of his sin for however many years he had this disease. Because in their world, the only way to be cleansed was to perform those offerings. So he's carrying the burden of, of every sin. He is carrying the burden of isolation. He's carrying the burden of the disease, of the lack of resources. Now, I, um, I just had a hysterectomy two weeks ago, and I found out that I've been overdoing it, so I'm having to scale back. Miss Independent doesn't like this. <laughs> um, I want to do my own dishes. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I do. I want to do my own dishes. Um, and, and, and so that made this extra like um, highlighted to me. He had no agency to meet any of his own needs. Even if he was physically capable, which we don't know that he was, he had no outlet to, to take care of any of his own needs. So that's the circumstance for this man. Um, again, the age and, and family stuff, that's, that's implied based on cultural norms. But the rest of it is, is just truth based on, on his circumstances. Um, and the last thing, and, and I know that for some people this isn't going to be as significant as it is for somebody like me, physical touch is one of my love languages. This man hasn't experienced human contact, and we don't know how long, definitely since he got the disease. No hug, no pat on the arm, no fist bump, nothing. There's been no human physical contact. People die from that. Babies die from that. We, we read stories about orphanages in 
less developed countries where babies die strictly from lack of physical human contact. It's, it's a need <laughs> that we have. Um, and it's a need that he wasn't able to have met. So the story tells us that he sees Jesus coming, and this is early on in Jesus' ministry from what we can tell. And it says that he approaches Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The people with Jesus and Jesus legally should have stoned this man for approaching. They should have picked up rocks and thrown them at him to kill him or drive him away like a wild animal. So my question for you today is, what do you think might have compelled somebody who might not even have known who Jesus was to take his life into his hands and approach him asking for healing? We're doing psychology on a dead person, but I'm curious to know what you think. Okay, so one way or another, it's got to get better. If they stone me, at least my suffering ends. Yeah. Dismal, but probably the closest to the truth. What else might it have been? Faith. So if he had heard about Jesus, he could have already had faith that he was who he said he was. Yeah. Because he had performed some miracles. um, So that could have gotten to him for sure. Any other thoughts? For me, what I, I, if not one of these, the only other thing that really goes through my mind is that his desperation overrode his um, survival instinct. Um, But anyway, I just, I encourage you, anytime you're reading scripture, if somebody does something weird, take a second and just think about why they might have. Um, it's, it's an interesting way to approach scripture, especially the, the more story-driven uh, aspects. But regardless um, of why he did it, he did it. And the scripture says that a lot of translations say that Jesus was indignant. Other translations say that he was filled with compassion. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the word, if we can go to the next slide. Um, And you know what? It's been too long since I tried to pronounce Greek. I'm not going to try. I even spelled it out in here, but I'm going to butcher it. Um, The word literally translates um, or comes from a term for the spleen or bowels. Um, Yeah, there we are. To have the bowels yearn, to feel deep sympathy or pity or compassion. So when you get into like the lexicons that, that break down language, um, this term was used in two different ways in this time. By the Hebrews, it was this idea of a deep, tender affection. So we're not just talking about pity. We're not talking about like, oh, this poor guy. There is something deep because the Hebrews believed that the bowels were the seat of like the most compassionate, the most tender of emotions. The Greeks, interestingly, saw it as the seat of the most passionate, fiery emotions. It's like when you talk about feeling a fire in your gut, um, whether it's rage or passion or or whatever it might be. So we're not talking about a heart emotion. We're not talking about a head emotion. We're talking about a deep, guttural emotion that Jesus felt for this man. And so then we see the order of the healing. And I will read this section first. It says that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. 
I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So let's talk about the order in which those things happened. The first thing Jesus does is touch him. He touches him before he's healed. The first thing Jesus restores is his humanity, is this idea that he's part of the human race and that he is as valid as anybody else. So he touches him. I imagine he touched his face. It doesn't tell us what he did, but I imagine Jesus kind of cupping the man's face. Then he says aloud, I am willing. And in this, I feel like he restores this man's value and worth as a person with agency. You've made a request that I am willing to honor. And he does this where others can hear and bear witness that Jesus has done so. And the third thing he does is say, be clean. And he uses this term clean, not be healed, be clean, which restores his ritual and religious value and worth. And so he systematically restores everything that's been lost for this man. And the result is immediate. It's also significant Jesus never links the disease to a sin. He doesn't say you're forgiven. He says be clean. And then he has this immediately visible result. Now Jesus tells him, go to the temple, make the offering that Moses described, but don't tell anybody what's happened. He tells people anyway. And we see why Jesus told him not to tell, because then Jesus can't like hide from people. He knows that he can't go fully public until he's ready to be crucified, because he knows what a threat he poses. So the first portion of Jesus' ministry is spent more up north, away from the seat of power, and kind of, um, it's just a little more provincial. This guy kind of throws a wrench in the plan by telling everybody he sees what Jesus has done for him. Usually that's where we focus, the end of this passage. I don't want to focus there today. I want to focus on, on the fact that how, that, that how could he have stayed silent? How could he not have told everybody that he knew? This is not something small. This is, the, Jesus gave him his life back in every possible way. How can you not shout that from the rooftops? So while we see like it caused some problems for Jesus and he maybe should have done what Jesus told him to do, all of the shame, the dehumanizing, the burden, the isolation had been vaporized. How could he not shout that out? To transition, before I became a Christian at the wise old age of 15, I was well on my way to being a hardcore liberal already, precocious, I know. Um, but I had a really, really um, dysfunctional home life. Um, very abusive, lots of addictions, things like that. And at 15, um, when I found a church home, um, became a Christian at the ripe old age of, th of 15, um, I was willing to exchange my beliefs for belonging. And I was willing to exchange my agency for dogma. Um, I, it, was, it was a group of loving people, they really were, but we were fundamentalist. And a lot of what I believed about the world and myself and gender and all of those things were in contradiction. And at that age, I was young enough to say, 
oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. These people love me, so that means something. So maybe they're right, and I, I was willing to put most of that to the side. But the issue of homosexuality never settled for me. Um, and at that time, I've been very fortunate. I, I came out at 36 as pansexual. And what that means is that I can be attracted to somebody regardless of their gender expression. Um, what that means is that I still had opportunities for relationship, marriage, family, because there were men that I was attracted to. And for so, so, so many people in the LGBT plus community, that's not the case. If they're not on as wide a spectrum, they live in a, a level of secrecy or loss or shame that I can't relate to. And, and I wanna just make that very clear. So I was in hiding to myself more than anything, I think. When I came out mostly, I heard, yeah, no kidding. Um, so apparently I was the last one to the party. But um, for most of my life, I, I just, you know, I, I struggled with the ethics of it. Because as a Christian, I felt like God had revealed to me over time his heart behind most of the things that we call sin. And it really came down to damage to the person and to, to other people. I couldn't find it when it came to homosexuality. And the hours that I clocked talking to clergy and Catholic monks and psychologists and other people trying to figure out why God was hiding his heart in this thing to me, I, I lost track of. Um, and so I was ashamed of what I had to believe about homosexuality, that it was a sin, but I could never explain why. And I didn't like talking about it because there was, no con there was no connection in me between what the Bible said, and if you wanna know what the Bible really says, let me know, because every one of those passages I can break down now. But at the time, I couldn't. And so what I thought the Bible said, and what was in every cell of my body true about God in relation to gender and sexuality, were never in line with one another. And after all those conversations, and after going through my undergrad program and talking to a dean and countless hours with Eric Masterson, Eric Masterson, Eric Masters, um, I was finally able to resolve those conflicts and declare myself as an ally. And when that happened, I shouted it from the rooftops. I was wrong. Um, and I've had individual conversations with people since then. I was wrong. Full ally, it's so cute when I see my posts from like early 2015 when I was like, ally, woo, and then August it's like, oops, nope, actually I'm part of that community. Um, but, uh, and, and I still believe that, that attraction doesn't have to be sexual or romantic. I just wanna make that abundantly clear. When we're drawn to somebody, it doesn't mean that it has to, to have a sexual or romantic implication. Man, does our culture say it does, but it doesn't, and, and I just wanna be very clear that I'm drawn to a lot of people in this room, um, but I'm also engaged to the only person I want a romantic or sexual relationship with. But as I finally came to understand a little bit of why I felt that way, um, I was able to further celebrate that I was already in a community that was loving and supportive, and I didn't have all of the obstacles and challenges that so many people do. Um, even today, people are trying to build community around LGBT plus orientation, and it's unsafe. Um, if we can go to the last slide. Angela and I recently watched a uh, short documentary series with Rain Wilson, um, who played Dwight in The Office. 
um, called Geography of Bliss. He goes to multiple different countries um, based on this like happiness scale, world happiness scale, to try to figure out what makes these people happy. And Ghana was one of the places he went, and one of the groups he met with was a group of theater kids, um, all LGBT+. And there is legislation happening right now that would make it illegal to support anybody in the LGBT community up to 10 years in prison, um, and absolutely illegal to be out. And so these kids have to change the location of their theater meetings every single week. Still today, we know what's going on in Florida. We know what's going on in Texas. We know what's going on in some of the Eastern European countries. But we have to keep remembering. Because if we really are all connected, if we really all part, are all part of one human family, then what's happening in Ghana should matter. Whether we can do anything physically about it or not, it needs to matter. And so as these safe spaces are still trying to be created, I want us to understand that pride is not, that pride is, is us within the LGBT plus community and allies not being able to stay quiet about the freedom from our shame. And part of my pride is not having to be ashamed of my beliefs anymore. And so when I want to scream it from the rooftops that God is fully inclusive and celebrates the diversity that God has created, it's because it was a really long, hard-fought journey to be able to say that with full conscience. Our restoration into the community as a whole is what we're celebrating. Our humanity being restored is what we're celebrating. How can we be silent? And maybe your experience of shame or separateness or isolation isn't linked or rooted in orientation. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's family secrecy, even if there wasn't full-fledged abuse secrecy in the family that, that rotted things for you. It could be addiction. It could be a lot of things. My hope as, as we go through Pride Month, as we go through our lives in general, is that everyone in this room, everyone hearing me, will experience the divine in ways that we cannot help but celebrate with dancing and color and singing at the top of our lungs. <laughs>